0: The East African nation of Burundi is yet to administer a single dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Their only protection is social distancing and hygiene. Supplies of the jab are so low in Uganda, that clinics are turning people away. The problem of vaccine inequality still needs fixing. Only 2% of people in low-income countries have received at least one shot whereas 33% of the global population has already got two doses. In some parts of the world, they're already starting to administer a third shot.
1: The clip you've heard is about a year old. From a YouTube video from DW News, called Vaccine Inequality Slows the Global Pandemic Fight. There is a companion YouTube video by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation called The Global Threat of Vaccine Inequality, which features our guest today. I urge you to watch them both. Even though these news items are a year old, the issues they have raised remain true even today. Welcome to Technology and the Future of Humanity. I'm a professor of Management Science at the University of Maryland, and this podcast on the future of humanity is an outgrowth of a university honors undergraduate class I taught at Maryland. In this episode of Future of Humanity, we will be speaking with Achal Prabhana, who has worked as a public health activist concentrating on monopolies in the pharmaceutical industry for the last 20 years. His work has been within the geographic focus of India, Brazil and South Africa, although many of these monopolies really are situated in Europe and the United States. During the pandemic, he has worked extensively on ways to increase access to vaccines, particularly the mRNA vaccines, and continues to do so. Achal Prabhala is currently the coordinator of the Access IBSA project, which was originated in a Shuttleworth Foundation Fellowship in 2016. In the recent past, he has been a Carnegie Resident Equity Scholar, Mellon Foundation Fellow at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, and a visiting researcher at the University of Cape Town served on the advisory board of Wikimedia Foundation and on the expert advisory group of Medicines Patent Pool. Achil, a really warm welcome to this podcast on technology and the future of humanity. Thank you, Anand. All right. I mean, I have seen and read about you for several weeks now, ever since our mutual friendly advice that I speak to you. I know you've been quite involved in recent weeks and months about the issue of unequal access to COVID vaccines around the world. I mean, you even have scientific American articles that I've read, actually, and they have seemed to have, you know, caused quite a stir. So can you kind of give us a sense of the impact of COVID, on countries like India, Brazil, South Africa, and other parts of the world. And what, what are people actually doing
0: to combat this virus even today? That's such a big question, Anand. And so maybe the way that I can start thinking about that for you is to explain what's happening today, right now, in the United States, where you live. Right. Right? You can step out of your home, drive a short distance to multiple locations and find a place that will give you what is called a bivalent booster. The bivalent boosters now are only a few days, a few weeks old. They were very recently approved by the FDA. They're available from both Moderna and from Pfizer. And what they are, are vaccines that target the original, what is called wild type of the coronavirus that emerged in 2020. And as well, that's the bi in the bivalent, the Omicron subvariant, b a five that is currently responsible for the the largest number of cases in the United States and Western Europe. so what it does is provide protection against transmission of the very thing that is infecting people today and still causing milder degrees of panic, but panic nevertheless, right and the reason that the bivalent vaccine exists is because the previous versions of the vaccines, let's call them the first generation vaccines, right, whether they were mRNA or non-mRNA, all of them began to get less and less effective as variants emerged. So, one of the things i think that many people remember which I, i'm sure you remember and you know anyone on the street practically will remember are those incredibly high efficacy figures that came out of pfizer and moderna towards the end of 2020 when they released through press releases their own internal study results from phase 3 trials of their vaccines that figure was for protection against transmission meaning it was the the degree to which you would be protected against even catching covid And that figure rapidly fell during the year as new variants emerged. So the first big variant that emerged was the Delta variant in India towards the middle of 2021. And what that did was to drop the efficacy of all vaccines, including mRNA vaccines. And then we had Omicron in December of 2021, and it dramatically dropped the efficacy of these vaccines. Almost to the point for some vaccines of rendering them completely ineffective at protecting against transmission. It's important to point out here that many of the vaccines, the majority of them, continue to protect against severe illness, but they could not guard against infection, right? And for several people, and this is one of, one of the ways in which this is manifested, I think, in the United States is the fact that you have hundreds of people still dying a week from COVID, right? It's just not on the front pages of newspapers, but they're still dying. And one of the reasons they are, other than being unvaccinated, is the fact that transmission itself in a whole range of different kind of individuals, either with, you know, compromised systems, people with diabetes, people with other kinds of health conditions or age-related factors that render them particularly vulnerable, to them, catching an infection can be deadly. Right? So it did matter that the very effective vaccines that we had towards the early stages of the pandemic were much less effective until a few months ago, which is why we have these bivalent boosters. And to get back to where we are today, so these bivalent boosters are coming out of two companies Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna. So three companies, but Pfizer and BioNTech work together. They are available in the United States and Western Europe and pretty much nowhere else in the world. My parents, for instance, are 89 and 76 years old. I have to be very careful with their ages because I get very offended if I get a year or two wrong. But my father is 89. And on Indian government policy at the moment, he is entitled to two doses of AstraZeneca plus one booster, which he's had more than six months ago. Yes, the AstraZeneca booster is not used any longer in the United Kingdom or Europe, much in the same way as J and J is not a vaccine that anyone takes in the United States. Right? The reason that it's not used is that it has documentation showing that it provides zero percent protection against the transmission of Omicron, which is to say, if you had a choice and if you could take something like an mRNA vaccine that gives you twenty five percent protection, you'd take it. Now, if you have an even better choice and you have a vaccine that potentially gives you original level protections against infection, then you would take that, right? Not only would you take that, the other element of the science is that boosting is recommended every six months, rather than just as a one-off event, until we can find a way to have a pan-coronavirus vaccine or another kind of solution. These solutions are only available in Western countries right now, two and a half years after the pandemic was declared. And I think this is absurd. The idea that a five-year-old child in the United States next month will be able to have had more vaccines, better vaccines, mRNA vaccines versus traditional vaccines than my 89-year-old father, I think it's ridiculous, but that is the state of the world.
1: Can I ask you a question? I mean, so what does someone like your father do? I mean, well, how can he get that effective booster, if I could say it that way. I mean, you said the government policy says
0: it is available to him, but is it really? there are two things going on here, right? One is that developing countries themselves have not been angels through the pandemic. And there've been several faults and gaps in terms of the government response, not just here in India, by the way, but in South Africa, a number of other sub-Saharan African countries, the Latin American countries actually did very well, relatively. But in South Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, I think governments have done terribly at protecting their own people. So even with the available tools that we have, we're not using them well enough. The the ideal way to do it, even with what we have, would be to provide booster shots every six months. We're not doing that. We have an outdated booster policy, which says that if you got... An inactivated virus vaccine like Covaxin, for instance, you have to continue getting boosted with Covaxin, which is ridiculous because the facts of the pandemic have changed. You know, as variants come about, there are now real life studies not done by the government, but by private medical institutions in India that show that mixing and matching vaccine boosters is a much better strategy, that some vaccines are better than others. In our case, AstraZeneca is better than Covaxin in terms of protecting against Omicron. So there's no reason to keep people stuck with a bad vaccine, right? When the data and the science is, in fact, proven that it should not be so. So there there is that element of um, miscalculation and a degree of incompetence. And I I have to just say, I think, a degree of carelessness and laziness as well in terms of what the government response is. And it's emboldened by the fact that there is just less, uh, there is a less degree of care about what is happening with COVID. Or maybe, maybe less degree of outcry as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. You see, so I think a lot of the way government policy functions is as a response to outcry. And so if it's not on the headlines any longer, if it's not on people's minds any longer, then why do we do anything about it?
1: But, but can I ask you, if the, if the policy was better and and, and that, that there was a protocol about who gets it and when they get it and those kinds of things and what they get,
0: uh, are there enough vaccines to go around? So this is an interesting question. There are enough vaccines to go around at this moment there weren't enough vaccines to go around when we started. So I, for instance, got my first shot in about March of 2021. I got my second shot at the end of Delta, which means that I lived through in Bangalore, the Delta variant ripping this country apart without the benefit of a second shot because I wasn't eligible for it. The reason it was delayed is because of a shortage of vaccines. So the truth is that with any country, really, honestly, whether the United States or India, when there is a great Simultaneous surging need, there is going to be a degree of shortage, a degree of delay and wait, right? In our case, we had not only a delay in the disbursement of vaccines, but then also severe crunches in the vaccine numbers that we had to give out. That then subsequently eased. And so we're in a much better situation now because the degree of basic vaccination is quite high. And that means that. People have some degree of basic protection, you know, which is, which is good. The problem is that even if India did much better and had more responsive policies that were forward-looking as well, one of the reasons that we went into Delta, in fact, was the fact that I think that we were very slow on realizing that we needed to vaccinate people as quickly as we could. We had a kind of honeymoon period in COVID when we heard horror stories coming out of Italy and the United States or New York City in particular. India was open. We were going to gyms and we were going to restaurants. And I lived here, so I understand exactly what we went through. It was really like the pandemic had never existed. And really almost overnight, in a, in a, in a period of about a week, we went from this incredible lull and complacency into horror. Now, and and a part of the reason we went into that horror is because of the fact that we should have been able to anticipate that something might happen, right? We need not have anticipated the horror of Delta. But if we had anticipated that something could happen unless we vaccinated people quickly, right, we would have actually done things much faster. We would have got vaccines out much faster. And we didn't do that. Now, however, even with more enlightened policies, the problem is we don't have the right vaccines. So we don't have a bivalent booster to give for love or money in, in this country. So can
1: I kind of focus a little bit on that, right? So we, we understand that, you know, on the one hand, China had a very draconian policy of shutting everything down. And then lots of countries, India, maybe have been in the middle, but a lot of African countries, for example, had a less fair attitude to a lot of these things. So you have these two extreme ends of the policy. But can I just focus on the availability of vaccines? I know that India has a huge manufacturing capability, right? And so given that, and, and a very, I would say, a competent and, and excellent set of scientists and so on. Why is it that that countries like India and to a lesser extent, perhaps other countries in the South are not producing their own Vaccines and not
0: manufacturing their own vaccines? Uh, the, the really simple answer, Alan, is that we have enormous capacity worldwide to produce vaccines. Very little of that capacity was actually used during COVID. And the reason very little capacity was used is that vaccines are a monopoly of a handful of the companies who made them. And they didn't share that monopoly with other companies who could make their vaccine, even if it meant the potential end of the planet. I see.
1: So when you're talking monopolies, you're talking about the monopoly of IP, right? Intellectual property rights, uh, or is it also somehow the monopoly of, of being able to manufacture?
0: The monopoly of being able to manufacture doesn't exist. It's a lie. So the kind of competence, let's say, to make a vaccine is often insinuated as being something that only exists in the West. That's just not true. But it is something very convenient for the pharmaceutical industry in the West to propagate because it justifies their holding on to their monopolies tighter. But the monopolies, as far as vaccines go, are quite complex. I hate using that word because I feel like you should explain why it's complex rather than say something is complex. But in traditionally, Anand, I think in medicines... Uh, The way that monopolies have been exercised is through intellectual property, through patents, which are, of course, a temporary monopoly granted by states, the governments of the United States or Europe or everywhere else, to a pharmaceutical manufacturer for typically 20 years in order to provide an incentive and protection for the risk that that pharmaceutical manufacturer might have taken to undertake the development of this new drug. Vaccines, however, are In biology, what are called large molecules, most medicines like antiretrovirals are like aspirin. They are what are called small molecules. They have a discernible chemical formula and they are products of chemistry. Vaccines traditionally have been products of chemistry and biology and the biological part the squiggly things that enter vaccines as proteins or peptides or cells, biological cells, they are very complex to make and they are also very hard to regulate. So you need another kind of regulation that governs the equivalence of vaccines. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that because of the biological nature of vaccines, they also have variability and they have a degree more unpredictability than aspirin, which is why the technology and the method of manufacture of vaccines itself is a significant monopoly. Which is to say basically that when Moderna makes a COVID vaccine, they own dozens if not hundreds of patents on that vaccine. Many times the patent estate itself is not entirely owned by Modena. It's cobbled together in the same way as you would do, let's say, if you wanted to have a large farm, right? Some of that land would be yours. You would license, you would rent some of the land from other people. You would long-term use of the land from some other people yet. So it's the patent estate tends to be bits of everything. However, the most significant monopoly that moderna has on its vaccine is the method of manufacture and there are different things people call that the technology the the manufacturing process but what it is is it's a detailed set of you know 2 to 3 hundred steps and measures that are taken from a to z in the production of the vaccine which include not just process steps but also quality control and 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 monitoring steps which taken together form a monopoly because I can't just create a Moderna vaccine on my own. So let's say I lived in a state where magically the patents were to disappear, right? Uh, And I had a factory that could do it. I can't actually just reverse engineer the Moderna vaccine based on a vial that I found and set it out because the drug regulator in India or anywhere else, this is a vaccine. So I need to not only know that you have the legal rights to do it, but I need to know if you're following exactly the same steps as Modena is, and whether Modena has authorized you to do so. So that monopoly is entirely powerful and is in com- completely in Modena's hands to keep or to give. Uh, thanks for that, because you know, I learned a lot about exactly
1: what this monopoly and what the patent rights kind of mean. So explain, I mean, I know that the Serum Institute in Pune, for example, is always touted as the world's largest producer of drugs and vaccines and so on. So for the Serum Institute to produce the Moderna vaccine, I mean, you are saying that they can't simply do it. They have to essentially know exactly what all those steps are in in terms of trying to produce this vaccine. And also Moderna has to give them a permission to go ahead and, and do that. You
0: know, one helpful way to think about it is this. In the short run, so let's say someone I loved or you loved was dying here in India of something and needed a drug, a small molecule. Let's say it was an antiretroviral, right? And let's say the antiretroviral had a patent monopoly in India. If there was a legal overturning of that patent monopoly, which is possible, the state itself can actually overrule a patent. You can challenge a patent and have it overruled. And so there are multiple ways to get rid of the legal obstacles to a monopoly. And once you do that, a company in India doesn't need permission from whoever put that antiretroviral out in the United States to replicate it. They also actually don't need any help to do so because these are simple molecules again. And and I think the clue there in simple because what, what they have to do is simply take a look at it and very easily then they will be able to figure out how to remake it. And so in a, in a, in, in, you know, as short a time as maybe two or three months, they could create a viable generic alternative to something that, if if the legal barriers were removed, right? When it comes to vaccines, however, the legal rights can be removed. I mean, that is a possibility. It's it's a power that states have everywhere in the world. They rarely use that power, but they could use it for vaccines as well. But even if they did so, the problem is that as you explained exactly, Serum or another company in India would not have a manual to make this vaccine. Because the reverse engineering of these vaccines doesn't necessarily yield the same result because the product is not as exactly measurable as it would be for chemical drugs. It requires the, or what is called the originator company, the company who developed a vaccine to either make it or to license, which is to say, authorize another company to make it. Okay. And you don't have generic vaccines.
1: So what, what will be involved? I mean, if you are to kind of make it widely available for the methodology of producing these vaccines to be widely available to countries that really need it. And let me give you the additional kind of comment with, for my question. The German government spent millions of dollars helping the research and so on that ended up with the Pfizer version of the vaccine. And Moderna also got, you know, billions of dollars actually from the U.S. government right at the beginning of this thing. So can these governments not not authorize or even direct some of these drug companies to help produce these drugs in, in in other countries so that it's better for
0: humanity? The short answer, I think, Anand, to your question is yes, absolutely. (laughs) That is what should happen. I would love it to happen. I think the slightly more, uh, the, the longer and the more complicated answer, I would say, is this, is that vaccine supply, like everything, is variable. There are ups and downs and cycles in terms of vaccination. And prior to COVID, a lot of it was driven by which donor agency was pushing what kind of vaccination program in what? you know, whatever region of the world that it was, which meant that a lot of vaccine manufacturing was public. The the procurement of vaccines was almost done exclusively by states rather than by private individuals. You know, you don't go to a shop and buy a vaccine. Typically, you go to, even in India to a government facility to get a vaccine. In we and, and most of those vaccines were what we would call off-patent vaccines. So when you get vaccinated for polio or smallpox or TB, these are diseases, of course, that don't exist in the West and very few people get vaccinated therefore, but they are vaccines that are in the public domain in general. And so they are very cheap to make. They have multiple suppliers and they have a fairly steady sort of philanthropy-driven volume that they are put out for every year. Now, Vaccines also, over the last 10 or 15 years, became a very profitable uh, pharmaceutical industry product, but this is recent. Typically, the in the long view of history, vaccines have been a fairly low-profit governmental intervention, where the opportunities for innovation had been low, the opportunities for profit had also been low. And so it was one of those things that was largely ignored by big pharma. What happened more recently is that Pfizer, coincidentally, the same company that now produces a leading mRNA vaccine, worked on vaccine against pneumonia. They called it the PCV, the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, which in the last 15 years delivered a surge in profits to Pfizer. So this is the company that made Viagra. And prior to the pandemic in 2015 and 16, Prevna, which is what they called it, was bringing in revenues of really close to about 5 billion a year, making it the single highest valued pharmaceutical product that Pfizer had. And it was a vaccine. GlaxoSmithKline GSK had a competing pneumonia vaccine that they also put out and also made a lot of money on. And so just prior to the pandemic a couple of these lucky companies were discovering that vaccines could be big business if they innovated to create vaccines to meet what people needed them for in the moment right what the however prior to the pandemic the problem with all of the vaccines we had that is what we that they were what we would call traditional vaccines they were biological vaccines you had to grow the cells in yeast or in eggs you had to actually manage all those squiggly things. And that was a linear process. You could not change that. Like you could not jiggle with the time that it took to grow the biologic products that you needed in your vaccine. You could not change the fact that it required a great degree of control over the variation and a complicated regulation system. What changed in the pandemic is for the first time in human history, we were able to create a non-biological vaccine, the mRNA vaccine. So the mRNA vaccine is a product chemistry primarily. It uses what is called routine biochemistry, meaning that it's chemistry, you know, it has an element of biology, but it's something that can be made in a test tube. However, when inserted into the body, it's a hack. The body recognizes it as biology, even though it's a product of routine biochemistry. And I know that that sounds, all very complicated. But what it just means is that suddenly it appeared as though vaccines could be made by many, many more pharmaceutical companies. So the problem with vaccines being procured by governments, being not hugely profitable, meant that there were fairly few vaccine manufacturers who wanted to deal with the complications of this, the biological vaccines. And that's how we went into the pandemic. But we had hundreds of other companies who made regular pharmaceuticals. And it turns out that they're capable of making an mRNA vaccine because it doesn't require the biological expertise, right? So in a study that I performed with a colleague with Human Rights Watch and MedScience on Frontier, we found that there were over 100 companies across Africa, Asia and Latin America who could make mRNA vaccines. But if we had performed the same exercise for J&J, for instance, right, the J&J vaccine, We would have had one fifth that number. So there would have been 20. And by the way, these companies were not the only companies who could make it. They were just the companies with the highest quality standards. They had exported what is called a sterile ejectable product. So very similar to an mRNA vaccine to an EU-regulated country or the US FDA, right? Which meant that not only were they capable of making products, they had been previously certified as making them at the highest global standards. The long way around of answering your question is that, of course, even if we did not have mRNA vaccines, there's a lot more that we could have done to produce traditional vaccines. But what made mRNA vaccines and the situation with them so egregious is that we can do so much with mRNA vaccines. We can produce them in so many places, in so many companies, in so many countries. I mean, there are, you know, 10 companies across Latin America and Africa who can make mRNA vaccines. None of them are. But it made the situation even more egregious that they're not, if you get that. And and they are not because of this uh... Patent rights and... Because there's a monopoly. Because there's a monopoly and Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech don't want to get rid of that monopoly. Look, you know, with Moderna, as you were saying, Moderna received over a billion dollars at first as an investment purely in research and development, which by, this is not speculation, by their own annual reports, that is to say by their own admission, covered 100% of their research and development costs. Absolutely. What is the risk they took for research and development? Exactly zero, right? On top of that, lucrative pre-orders, and pre-orders, by the way, are essentially guaranteed orders on the basis of passing regulatory approval for tens of billions of dollars, right? Both companies received from the US government Fi- BioNTech from the German government received a grant of close to 500 million euros in order to 500 million dollars, sorry, in order to develop its own vaccine. Right. So they took public money. They created a private product. They created the most democratically manufacturable private product in the world and then turned it into the most monopolistic vaccine that's ever existed. Until last month, 93% of all mRNA vaccines were supplied to rich countries. 7% went to the other 50% of the world where I live, low and lower middle income countries. The bivalent vaccines, that statistic is even worse. It's yet to emerge because they've just started being dispersed. But no one, not only am I not getting that here, not only is my father not getting that here, we have no prospects of getting that here, right? <laughs> I think that is what makes the situation with mRNA vaccines particularly egregious. Now you would think, going back to your question, if the US government provided fifteen or twenty billion dollars to Moderna, a heck of a lot of money, right? Covering covering all their costs, negating their risk to zero, assuring them of unheard profits, unheard, especially in Moderna's case, that they might have some influence over Moderna. And unfortunately. The way that the laws have been written, the way that the laws have been, let's say it as it is, gamed since the 1980s by the pharmaceutical industry has meant today that there's very little legal power that the U.S. government, even, you know, uh, the White House actually has to exercise. So except for shame, except for scorn and like embarrassment that they could level at Modena's way, there isn't a clear legal path by which the U.S. government can say, hey, this is what we want to do, do it. No, I mean,
1: one clear path is that they could actually buy the drugs, buy the vaccines, and then simply send them over to wherever it's needed. I mean, just think about it. I mean, we are in the midst of this uh, war, Ukraine and uh, us congress is passing hundreds of millions of dollars you know of, uh, i mean by the time we are done with it they would have passed few billion dollars of appropriations to send things to kill people <laughs> but on the other hand to save people i think they are not thinking along those lines let me let me shift this conversation a little bit in terms of some level of introspection so you know we are I've been doing this thing for a long time, which is complaining, arguing, you know, trying to kind of provide kind of impetus and a pressure for the West to share that things that they have created with the rest of the world, right? So I have a question though, why is it that a country like China or even a country like India, we are not producing these, the same level of drugs and vaccines that can actually make a difference. And let me again add a writer to my question. Is the whole world so prejudiced against a country like China that we are not even willing to accept that what they produce is good enough for the rest of us?
0: Yeah, look, I have to just say that the China situation is, is absurd. Earlier in 2021, I wrote a piece in the New York Times around what was then looked looking like a promising Russian vaccine and two promising vaccines from China. It turned out over the long run of things that the two Chinese vaccines were fine. The Russian vaccine was a dud, not in terms of quality, because they did not work out how to mass manufacture it. And I think that the level of pushback that I received from that in terms of Questions around China and Russia was staggering. And the idea that every element of science or industrial manufacturing in China must be looked at with suspicion because of, let's say, the Chinese state's very crimes in provinces in China where they persecute people, I find that idea absurd. So there were two excellent vaccines that came out of China by one public sector company called Sinofarm and a private sector company called Sinovac. And they In the first six months of the pandemic, they vaccinated more of the world and even today, actually they stand right on top of the number of vaccines that they've put out into the world. They saved The entire continent of Latin America. They saved a large proportion of what I would call West Asia, you'd call the Middle East from where you sit. They provided those vaccines, but not only did they provide vaccines, they provided technology. So they provided manufacturing and licensing partnerships with Latin American countries and West Asian countries to make their vaccines there, right? Rather than just selling them across. One of the big shifts that's happened in the pandemic, I think that people underestimate, is the fact that finally, because of necessity, we had original world-class innovation come out of places that had never done so before. One of the curious things about drug development, vaccine development is for the last several hundred years, they've only ever come from the West. Nothing world-beating, like there's not a single pill, Anand, that you take or a vaccine that you take that was developed in Taiwan or Chile or India, right? everything that you take in the United States came from the UK, the US, the EU, somewhere, right? And this has actually been the story of innovation in the pharmaceutical industry through humanity for as long as we can remember it. By the way, by the way, including, including a tiny little country called Switzerland, Right. Including a tiny little country called Switzerland. Exactly. But you know, what you had in the pandemic is that another tiny little country called Cuba, which uh, you might know, produced not one, but three effective vaccines made on a platform called the protein subunit platform, which is actually a very advanced traditional method of vaccine manufacturing they also offered it to anyone in the world who wanted it. Of course, no one listened to them because again, the Cuban vaccine was being conflated with the alleged crimes and wrongs of the Cuban state, which is a very difficult proposition, I think, for anybody, for me to accept. The fact that Cuba could produce three vaccines, the fact that the Chinese state produces produced numerous vaccines, the fact that In India, a private-public partnership produced one effective vaccine that for a short while was approved by the WHO, which they then withdrew because of manufacturing problems, etc. But nevertheless, the fact that we had for the very first time vaccines that worked against a global viral pandemic that came out of countries not based in the West was absolutely revolutionary. This has never happened before. My hope is that It didn't come out again because of a sudden surge in confidence, simultaneous event that occurred in southern countries. But I think it came out of necessity. All poor countries and middle-income countries, even middle-income countries, which are technically rich, were so heavily locked out of the Western vaccine supply cycle that they had to find another way to do things. And we did. Right.
1: Back to the cliche that necessity is the mother of invention. I'm hoping that many of these crises that we're dealing with, I mean, certainly The COVID crisis is one of them. I think, you know, what's going on in terms of the war in in Ukraine is another one of them and so on is now going to trigger more of a cooperation between countries that are not in the spheres of, let's say, the United States and Western world to think new and not, I mean, certainly it's very nice to, to hear. Now, for example, I did not hear, I did not know that Cuba had produced all these vaccines. So sitting in the United States, you don't hear many of these kinds of things. So I'm hoping that that will trigger a completely different regime of scientific discovery and certainly medicines for the rest of the world. Uh, Let me shift. I mean, we have about a few minutes left for this conversation. I want to shift it to two topics and and take it in this particular order. So the one topic, I know you've spent a lot of time working on issues of Uh, uh, the cost of medicines. I mean, why do medicines cost a certain amount? And uh, we we just had a podcast that I did with Vijay Chandru on rare diseases. It turns out that the cost of medicines for some of these rare diseases could be in the millions of dollars. I mean, every shot you take might be a million dollars. So I don't want you to just focus on the rare disease, but in general. And the second thing about the cost of developing drugs and the cost of what people pay for drugs and you might want to talk a little bit about generic drugs you know and w- what kind of role India can play in this for the rest of the world and the second thing is I mean I <laughs> the thing I like about you actually you are a visionary I mean I you have this view about what the future of this planet could look like you know you know you know if we actually are better in terms of how we deal with the rest of the world we deal with the whole world actually So. What about your your vision, of the, in terms of the general area of drug discovery, development,
0: manufacturing, and distribution? Why do drugs cost so much? Ever since about the nineteen eighties, ever since specifically the introduction of something called the Bay-Dole Act in the United States, from Senators Evan Bay and Bob Dole, the drug industry has spun an incredibly successful story. It's successful because people actually believe it, which is this idea that the only feasible incentive for drug development is a monopoly. It's false. (laughs) It's false because firstly, we innovated before the 1980s, and we will innovate after and outside of monopolies. But the reason that it's false is that it's also inefficient. So many economists who work on this subject, from the leftist of the left wing to I would say far center right, agree that a monopoly and the monopoly system itself, even when it's legal, is an inefficient way to manage innovation and access. You could have a range of other alternatives as incentives that would work just as well. Price funds, for instance, right? price funds would not only work just as well, but they would also allow the National Institutes of Health or the White House to actually set health priorities. So at the moment, the way this works is that a lot of what is decided in terms of what comes into the market is decided by the market, by the pharmaceutical industry. I don't think that they're the experts in deciding what a nation needs in terms of drugs and vaccines, right? The CDC or the NIH might be better predictors of it. So... If you had prize funds where you rewarded companies with large, significant, meaningful sums of money for drug development, and then allowed anyone to make that drug or vaccine, for instance, certainly from, you know, even the most rudimentary economics perspective, that is a far more efficient solution for industry and society. A monopoly provides fewer people in the industry with a greater degree of profit, right? Right. So, which is obviously why there is such a, you know, a, a craze around, you know, that particular rent-seeking model. It does not mean that it's either good, it's certainly not good for society, but it in fact also isn't very good for industry in terms of widening and expanding the industry itself. So I think that the in terms of when we look at things like price, that's the first thing to think about. But the second thing to think about with price is why... For instance, in the pandemic, Americans were thrilled to be getting their vaccine free, but they weren't. They were only paying for it once instead of twice, which is why they were confused, right? Like yourself, meaning every other drug, you not only pay for its development through taxpayer funds that go to the US government, to Treasury, which are then allocated to the National Institutes of Health, which then disperses, Vast subs of money that you don't hear about because it's not a pandemic to every drug manufacturer to work on heart disease, to do all the kind of basic research that venture capital will not fund because it's too risky, it's too early stage, right? All of that is funded by you. Now, when you buy that drug, you're paying for it twice. In the pandemic, for the very first time, not only did you fund it once, it turned out that this particular time you were let off from paying for it twice. But I just thought it was funny because I think there is such a lack of understanding that the public and and the U.S. government actually has an extraordinary degree of control over what happens with the price of drugs. But because that's not very well known and understood, because the laws that could allow the government to intervene and the public to intervene have been shaped against them, it means actually that you know we need to have a, a harder think of why we squander public money so easily without any accountability you know you wouldn't do that in any other situation right where you just say here billions of dollars it's for you take it do what you will with it who does that i mean it really never happens in any other sector of in any other industrial sector except the pharmaceutical industry so that's where i would start with understanding and reworking what the price of things should be in a way that is actually Clearly better for society, but eventually better for industry as well. In terms of the future, Anand, I think that this pandemic, a viral respiratory pandemic, right, where we had a respiratory virus that was circulating the world was like climate change, meaning that you couldn't actually just sit back and say, okay, I'm doing something in my backyard. I will cut my emissions. Emissions. Certainly that will help me and it can help the planet in part, but it's a collective problem. It's a planetary problem that requires a planetary solution. And unless we can think in planetary terms rather than narrow nationalist terms, then we don't have a solution, right? The U.S. can cut emissions as much as it likes, but if country X is not going to at all, the U.S. is part of the planet which will suffer from climate change regardless. This is exactly what happened in the pandemic. And we just didn't realize it. So all of this nationalism, you know, the rush of making sure that five-year-olds in America were better vaccinated than my 89-year-old father. This is, I'm so sorry to say, what led, to the creation of Delta, what definitely led to the creation of Omicron. Um, you know, uh, uh, the executive director of United Sta- of the United States Aid Agency, USAID, just went on record, actually, in an article in Yahoo Finance and said, look, even if we had got vaccines to everybody, we might not have prevented Delta because Delta came so quickly, right? And it takes time to get people vaccinated. But we definitely could have preven- prevented Omicron. Now, so the the thing with it is that the nationalism of providing vaccine upon vaccine to maybe people who don't need it as much in the United States over people who need it much more in other places actually finally came back to hurt Americans. And I think we have to be able to think of the next pandemic with the same degree as climate with in, in exactly the same terms as climate change which is that You know, and I don't fully know what that means because, you know, political authority and nationalism is very difficult to supersede, right? No country likes doing that themselves. People don't like having that power taken away from them. I'm not sure if it's even possible to do, but it has to be done. It's the same thing that is needed for climate change that is needed for the next viral pandemic, right? And the lack of it will cause exactly the same failures as we saw. And so in terms of the future, I think that's very much how we need to be thinking and finding ways in which we can implement that in some way with real teeth, right? So that it works, so that the 15-year-old in the United States does not feel politically disgruntled, that an 80-year-old health worker in the Central Africa African Republic is getting a vaccine before him. I like the
1: analogy to climate change. So, obviously, now because of the increased awareness, every now few years we have these summits where countries come together and at least they agree that here are some of the things that we are planning to do. They don't necessarily implement all those agreements and there's always politics about what goes on, but nevertheless. At least there is a commitment we have to really deal with climate change, you know, and and let's hope that we do it the best way we can. I think you're right about this respiratory virus of future pandemics. Because as I was telling my friends here, that if you don't vaccinate somebody in Africa, the pandemic might, the virus might well come from Africa or from India to the United States, which is what happened with some of these variants, right? So I hope that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, and I like your vision, that hope that the world comes together and says that like climate change, what affects one of us also affects all of us. And so we need to really take care of all of us in order to get to a better place. Anyway, it has been a real pleasure to talk to you for the last hour. I mean, I learned a lot, actually, about what happens with vaccines, you know, and also what kind of barriers there are to vaccines being widely available and what kind of things we should be thinking about to make the <laughs> humanity <laughs> better, to take it to a better place in the future. So Achal, thank you very much. And uh, I also want to wish you the best of luck because uh, what you're trying to do is, you know, really, really important. And I really hope that uh, some of the questions and comments and, and suggestions that you've generated. Uh, we'll echo w- far and wide. So thank you very much. Thank you, Arun. It was a pleasure. In the next episode of Future of Humanity, so those processes are central to what is human-centered AI, but the goals are also new ones. Instead of building machines that have efficient algorithms... We want to build machines that are usable, that are useful, that are comprehensible, that are controllable, that are predictable. And so it's a different set of concerns. We will be talking to Ben Schneiderman, computer science professor at the University of Maryland, whose pioneering work has led to the human-centered AI movement. Ben has interesting views on where the romance of artificial intelligence falls down and what the future holds when using AI intelligence. You can listen to Future of Humanity with Dean Arnold wherever you get your podcasts.